0: Good morning to you. Good morning. Perhaps you heard the one about the man who got lost flying his hot air balloon. And after a, a period of desperation, he lowered the balloon until he found someone close enough he could cry out to. And he said, excuse me, can you tell me where I am? And the man below shouted up, yes, you are hovering 30 feet above a field. You are between 40 and 42 degrees north latitude and between 58 and 60 degrees west longitude. The guy in the balloon shouted down, "Uh, you must work in information technology, said the balloonist. And the man below said, well, well, I do, but, but how did you know? The balloonist said, everything you've told me is technically correct, but it is of no use to me. The man below retorted, Well, you, sir, must be a corporate leader, I presume. And the balloonist said, Well, why, I am. How did you know? He said, Well, you don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going, but you expect me to be able to help. You're in the same position you were in before we met, but now somehow it's my fault. (laughs) So it is with the challenge of modern leadership. Uh, Our society is clamoring for good leaders. Uh, So is God's church, my friends. Uh, We need godly elders. We need servant-hearted deacons. We need excellent small group facilitators. We need worship leaders. We need brigade leaders, pioneer girl leaders, grief-share leaders, sage leaders, time leaders, youth leaders, and on and on it goes. If you turn over a rock in God's church, you will find a spot where we could use another leader. And so for the next several Sundays, We will be in Nehemiah 6 and Nehemiah 7. As there is perhaps no better book in all the Bible, a book so chock full of practical biblical wisdom on leadership than God's book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the Bible's great leaders. And he successfully undertook one of God's great projects and he completed that project in absolutely record time. Ten sermons ago, if you were paying attention, we started our series in Nehemiah with a sermon entitled, Leadership Lessons from Nehemiah's Notebook. And six chapters later, we return to Nehemiah's Notebook, and we turn the page to page two of that notebook, and we are going to learn 16 practical biblical principles over the next several Sundays from this chapter and a half of Scripture. And so if you would turn with me to Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. Nehemiah 6 and verse 15. Now, if you don't have a, a Bible with you today, I'd encourage you to use one of ours. Grab that blue pew Bible in front of you, and I believe if you turn to page 508, you will get to Nehemiah chapter 6. Page 508, Nehemiah 6. As you turn to the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you this morning to speak your truth to our hearts we pray that as today we look at four of these uh, biblical principles of leadership lord in a world crying out for leadership as we as we look for leaders in our homes as we look for leaders in our workplace as we look for leaders in your church i pray lord that we would lead not from pragmatism that we would not lead from uh, the world's view of what works but we would lead from timeless truths that you have treasured and given us in Scripture. I pray, Lord Jesus, that that we would see over these several Sundays many practical pieces that we can implement in our leadership to the glory of God in those places that You have given us for service. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Well, friends, I'm just going to read a slender section of Nehemiah 6, starting at verse 15. This morning, the Bible says, "...so the wall was finished..." on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us were afraid, and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonahan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now that's just a portion of our passage that we're going to look at over these next couple weeks, we're going to zero in on the first couple verses alone. Friends, you know, you can go to parts of the world. The the Bible has been preached for 2,000 years. We've had 2,000 years of Christianity, and there's only six books, or 66 books, and yet those 66 books have brought sermon after sermon after sermon. Uh, The Bible is an interesting truth. It comes from God, and so the brand new Christian, the child, can swim in gospel truth and not drown. But the scholar can dive and never find the bottom. There's so much in Scripture. And so we're going to be in this little passage for several weeks to see a number of principles. Now, the the Spanish have a proverb, I'm told. The proverb goes like this. Tomorrow is the busiest day of the week. Mark Twain used to say, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow. For too many saints, procrastination is the reason for our inaction. We know what God has nudged us to do, but we wait for some later date to get a start on that task. Now, for other brothers, it's a different issue. Uh, Procrastination isn't the issue. Rather, they make a start, but all their efforts are just fits and starts. Sadly, rarely do they land the plane and bring to conclusion and completion their God-given mission. And so, that brings us to our first point in our outlines today. Our first point today is this. Biblical leaders bring to completion their God-given mission. They don't just have a good start. Let's say that again. Biblical leaders bring to completion their God-given mission. They don't just have a good start. Nehemiah was called of God to see to it that the walls around Jerusalem were built. Uh, Now, there was Sanballat the Horonite, there was Tobiah the Ammonite, there was Geshem the Arab, and they all worked repeatedly in our story to, to distract, to delay, to hopefully deny the work of God. The Bible tells us why. Because they cared not for the welfare of God's people. They only cared for their own personal agendas. All right. So, despite all of these unending frustrations, God's man finally achieved his God-given mission in our passage. Look at verse 15 again. So the wall was finished on the 25th day on the month of Elul. Friends, biblical leaders bring to completion their God-given mission. There's an old saw whose teeth still cuts true today. Many times, it's not what you start in life, it's what you finish that matters. Many times, it's not what you start in life, it's what you finish that matters. Now, sadly, too many saints seem to be more kingdom aspirers. That is, we we daydream things for God, but we don't necessarily roll up our sleeves and put our hands to the plow. And so, no harvest happens in the here and now. Many saints stumble in, in, not in failing to plow at all but rather they fail in not persevering in their plowing until god's harvest has come in jesus tells us in luke 9 62 luke 9 62 no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of god now the man in luke 9 he does more than dream. He hooks up his oxen and he gets to work. That's great. But at some point during his plowing, he takes his eyes off of his task and he longingly looks back at something that distracts. Uh, He looks back at at whatever distraction has caught his attention. At at whatever object he holds in greater affection than his God-given mission of persevering in his plowing. And this looking back causes the oxen to go off track. And the straight lines that are needed for tidy planting, well, they become a jangled mess, don't they? And so opportunities for maximum kingdom efficiency are forever lost in the situation. And the longer he lingers looking backwards, the more the harvest will be diminished. Which is why Jesus lovingly, but very wisely says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, we need less fits and starts. And we need more saints who stay the course. Amen? If we're going to achieve what God has called us to do, we need to discipline ourselves, the Bible says, for the purpose of godliness. That's what the Bible says. Uh, We need to persevere so that by Christ's grace, we are the overcomers that Scripture promises, not the false starters that we in our own flesh will naturally be. Now, if we know that God has called us to a task, we must not let some other distraction vie for our attention, or we will find ourselves off track and off target, and kingdom opportunities will be forever lost to us. Now I want you to know something else here when you think about biblical leaders bring their God-given mission to completion. What you need to understand from Scripture is not every leader is called to achieve every facet of God's work. Completion of one's God-given mission does not mean completion of all of God's work in a given location, generation, or situation. And that's sometimes something that saints forget. It is clear from Scripture, it is unmistakably clear from Scripture, that that different leaders have different God-given missions. In our last book, think back to the book uh, of Ezra, uh, God raised up a man named Zerubbabel, and his task was to bring the exiles back from Babylonian captivity. And then God raised up two other prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to stoke up the saints so that when the work went slack, God's people picked up the tempo and they finished the temple that had been started, but not finished. And then God raised up a man named Ezra the namesake of that book. And, and Ezra's job wasn't to build anything. His job was to facilitate a revival in the hearts of God's people because, friends, a remnant and a temple do not generate authentic biblical worship. Rather, a heart for God in the people of God is where you get authentic biblical worship to God. And then in our book, about 13 years after uh, Ezra birth son of the scene, God raises up our man, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has a different mission. His mission is to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. That's his God-given task. All right. Notice that our all-wise God raised up different leaders for different parts of His one work. Each leader had a specific mission. No one leader was tasked with every aspect of God's work. But to Nehemiah, it fell to build the walls. So Nehemiah, the biblical leader, had to bring to completion his God-given mission. That means Nehemiah, the biblical leader, didn't stop when some of the walls were erected. He didn't stop when most of the walls were erected. He didn't stop until all the walls God called him to build were erected. That means that he organized, he, he galvanized, he exercised the people of God to continue in the task God had given them until that task was finished. That means Nehemiah, the biblical leader, didn't omit the hardest bits. Even sections he found in such sad shape in chapter 1 and 2 that they couldn't be traversed by animal. It was so much rubble that they could only be traversed by gingerly stepping on foot through those severely smashed sections. Those severely smashed sections were made solid and they were made sound because the work of God wasn't complete until it was completed. Hmm. Nehemiah made sure that those walls were 8 feet thick so the enemy could not breach. Nehemiah made sure those walls were an unscalable, nearly unassailable 40 feet in the air. Because, friends, biblical leaders don't cut corners, they complete the mission God has given them. Nehemiah had about two and a half miles of perimeter to cover in those walls, and he made sure God's people completed every single section of that mission. Now, let's do the math, all right? Two and a half miles in length, times eight feet in width, times 40 feet in height. The math comes to a whopping 4,224,000 square feet of boulders to shoulder all while opposition continuously rained down on the people of God. But the wall was finished, verse 15, on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. Friends, biblical leaders bring to completion their God given mission. And so it raises a a somewhat uncomfortable personal question here today. Are we kingdom accomplishers or are we simply false starters? Are we completers or are we quitters? What has God laid on your heart that you gave a great start and yet now it sits in the dust and begins to rust? Friends, pick up your trust. Pick up that beam and go at it full steam. If God told you to do it, get back to it. I don't know what that is. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I know among the people of God, it's very easy to begin with fits and starts and stop and wait and miss the opportunity to complete what God has handed you. I want you to know in Scripture, God grades us not on successfulness. He grades us on faithfulness. And did you know that faithfulness always requires perseverance? Faithfulness always requires perseverance. 1 John 5, 4. I think it'll come up on the wall here. 1 John 5, 4 puts it like this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes. Now you don't overcome unless there's an obstacle, unless there's something to persevere. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now this brings us to our second leadership lesson from Nehemiah's Notebook. The second leadership lesson is this. Biblical leaders rally God's people to things only God can do. Biblical leaders rally God's people to things only God can do. Rebuilding the ruins that were raised some 140 years ago seemed an utterly impossible obstacle. And so no one had even attempted it. Do you know about the Jewish historian Josephus who who writes kind of in the first century-ish? He writes in the early church eras. So the Jewish historian Josephus Uh, chronicling centuries later than our text, when he writes about this section of Nehemiah, and when he writes in his book, The Antiquities, he says, our text must be mistaken. He believes the task would have taken at least two years and four months. But the Bible is clear. It was less than eight weeks from the time the first stone was set in until the final gate was up. This historian, Jewish historian, Boy, this would take at least two years and four months. God said it happened in eight weeks or less. Nehemiah, the biblical leader, and the faithful folks he led in just 52 days did the impossible. The Bible says they worked from dusk till dawn. Uh, you got to remember something. As scrupulous saints, they would have had to rest every single Sabbath, wouldn't they? And so there wasn't 52 days of working in the work. There were less than 52 days of work it was 52 days before the work was completed. It's even more amazing than what couldn't be believed in antiquity. Now, how did God how did the people of God achieve this huge thing in such a short space of time? And here's the answer: because God was at work. How did they do it? Because God was at work. because God was at work rebuilding the wall seemed impossible but with God what does Jesus say all things are possible Nehemiah not only could lead the people to the impossibly large project but he enabled them to do it in an impossibly small time frame in just 52 days they did this task in 52 days mission impossible became mission accomplished now this is amazing But it's not really surprising. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? One saint walking in today said he'd read the Bible 77 times through. May that be true for me and you. Amen? Have you read the Bible? According to the Bible, God is able. God is able. For instance... There's a biblical leader you meet early in Scripture. His name is Moses. And God raised up Moses to rally God's people so that they crossed the Red Sea despite the Pharaoh seeing red. Uh, when Pharaoh followed God's people into that Red Sea, God made sure the wheels came off Pharaoh's army and his plan and so that their army was left dead in the water. Did you read that story? you remember that story? Alright. God's plan was so incredibly ingenious that He... Filled in details before God's people knew there was even a future problem. Let me show you what I mean. God worked so that the Israelites would not have to fight. How many soldiers put on armor to defeat the world's superpower in that story? Not one Hebrew soldier. They just crossed and God brought the sea to consume the army. And then there was another problem. God took care of details they could have never guessed they needed help with. God was about to call His people when they got across the Red Sea, He was going to call His people to make an elaborate tabernacle of worship. And they were going to live in the middle of a desert, and so where are they going to find the gold and the precious things that were needed to make the tabernacle of God? It wasn't around. There was no Home Depot in the desert, you know. It was nothing. And so God had worked in that situation before they knew they needed it, that by the end of the twelve plagues of God, His people were able to plunder the Egyptians, the Bible says. Read the story. Their Egyptian overlords voluntarily gave God's people the gold and precious materials that they would need, though they were slaves, to build God's tabernacle when the time came in the desert. Now that is a marvelous story. Do you know why? Because in that story, God gets all the glory. The only one who did it was God. Who parted the sea? God. Who swept away the superpower? God. Who provided the material in a desert? God. Who had a plan from beginning to end? God. All right, the next book in the Bible is just like that. This time there's a new biblical leader and a new biblical mandate for that leader. They had different missions because they were different purposes of God. Moses was called of God to lead the people in the Exodus, but Joshua was an entirely different leader, and he had an entirely different mandate. Joshua was called of God to turn a band of stiff-necked rumblers who had withered as they wandered in the wilderness due to their own unfaithfulness into a people of faith a very unlikely task. Take the unfaithful grumblers and turn them into a people of faith. A people of faith who will cross the Jordan River at the impossible moment when it is at full flood stage. No one can come across the Jordan River when it's going back quickly. You can't get men and materiel, much less women and children. How are they going to do that? A people of faith who obediently but ludicrously and dangerously marched around and then shouted down the walls of the first great city. They faced These citizens who were themselves never soldiers, they were previously slaves, somehow they took on the combined armies of the southern and northern Canaanite confederacies. And the book of Joshua is clear. They did it all by faith. By faith. Now, how did that happen? It was statistically improbable. It was seemingly impossible. But it happened. How? Because we serve a living God. Because we serve a living God, a powerful Savior who raises up biblical leaders who rally God's people to do things only God can do. That's how. Friends, without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. Without faith... It's impossible to praise God. Hebrews 11.6 Therefore, God will often call us to impossible situations. Things that we cannot achieve by our own efforts and abilities. And so biblical leaders called by God often rally God's people to things only God can do. These tasks are never to be sought out of hubris, but rather out of obedience to God's clear guidance. Those leaders heard from God And then the people followed God. It wasn't just that we came up with some great idea, big, hairy, audacious goal, and gave it a holy try. That's not it. God's clear leading led to God's clear providing. Let me show you an example. Do you remember the disciples? And and the disciples are one day, they're on the boat, and Jesus is walking on water. And Peter looks out and he thinks that's a pretty good deal. And he wishes he could walk on water like his Lord. And what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at Peter and sees the desire of his heart to see things done that only God can do, that only can be done by the power of God. And Jesus says, come on out here to Peter. And the Bible says, for a little while, Peter, sinful Peter, imperfect Peter, foot in his mouth, Peter, walked on water just like his Lord. Now, it didn't last very long, did it? Okay, because while Christ commanded Peter, and so Peter walked on water... That happened until his faith began to falter. And then he sank like a stone. And he would have died without the Lord reaching out his hand. The Bible says in Matthew 14.30, in Matthew 14.30, why did Peter fall? When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, "Oh, you of little faith, why? Did you doubt? If God has called us to a task, friend, we mustn't give in when the enemy sends wind. And he will. The enemy will send wind. When he took his eyes off of Jesus and on to the waves of the wind, he sank because his faith began to falter. Now, friends, it takes great faith to walk on the water, but I'm going to tell you it takes greater faith to stay standing on that water when the wind comes in. Hebrews eleven tells us this. I want you to listen. See if you didn't see anything repeated in this text. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for He was looking for His reward. Verse 27, "...By faith He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for He endured as seeing Him who is invisible." Verse 28, "...By faith He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them." Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, and were made strong out of weakness and mighty in war, and put foreign enemies to flight. Did you notice any recurring themes? Friends, biblical leaders always rally people to do things that only God can do. And when God does it, everybody knows it. They know they didn't do it. They know they couldn't do it. So who built that wall in our story? God built that wall. God built that wall. God's people were obedient. Yes, they were. But without the good hand of God, there would be no wall at all. Amen? Which brings us to our third point. Biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even uh, detractors reluctantly recognize the hand of God in the situation. Uh, Biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even detractors recognize the hand of God in that situation. I want you to look at verse 16 very closely. And when our enemies heard of it, heard of what? Heard of the wall being built in 52 days to completion. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and they fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished, how? With the help of our God. They didn't say, boy, those, those Hebrews are really organized. That Nehemiah has really got... They said, God did that. How many times in the history of, of the Bible and church history has the world stopped and said, wow, God did that. And every time that happened, God was given glory. And somebody was made to think there is a living God and I need to reconcile my life in some new way. But when we only do what we can do, and the Kiwanis Club can do stuff too. Hmm. Biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even detractors reluctantly recognize the hand of God. All through the previous six chapters, Nehemiah's enemies had tried to intimidate him. And now the Bible says they themselves were intimidated They reluctantly were made to understand that the rapid completion of this formidable task could only be done at the very hand of God. And so Sanballat the Horonite hated it, but he couldn't deny it. God built that wall. Uh, Tobiah the Ammonite was apoplectic, but he had to accept it. Jerusalem was no longer so vulnerable. Geshem the Arab was indignant, but he was powerless to stop it. Verse 16, And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Friends, God has relit the pilot light at Calvary Church, hasn't He? Many of you have been talking to me about that in prayer meeting and in our meetings in the hallways here at Calvary during the week, and you've shared the same basic story so many times. That God has blessed us over these three and a half years together. He's blessed us with hundreds of thousands of dollars in campus improvements to address 20 years of deferred maintenance. Things that were long left unattended are now fixed. One Sunday this summer, our staff counted, and we counted there were 20 visitors. But I'm told that just a few short years ago, there were times where there might only be 50 saints in the whole building in the summer. But 20 visitors on a single Sunday this summer. Uh, Early on, we prayed as a church that God would raise up biblically qualified elders. And I'm overjoyed to say that I now serve with six wonderful, godly individuals who give their heart and soul to this church. Uh, We prayed for God to rebuild our ministries. And today, old ministries have new life, and new ministries have been birthed unto life in a very short space of time. God is undeniably at work in this church. We pray for God to send us people who are hungry for His Word. We have prayed for that in this church on Sunday morning. We have prayed for that on Wednesday nights. We prayed for that over and over. In your prayer guide each week, in your small groups, you pray that God would send us people hungry for His Word. And I'm going to tell you what, some of you are here today because you're a direct answer to that prayer. And you came and you were hungry and you wanted more of His Word. We don't advertise. We don't market. We don't do any of the stuff you're supposed to do. In 2018. You know what we do? We pray. And you came. God is at work. Many of you have commented how, how there's wonderful love and unity here at Calvary. Some of you have come from places where that wasn't the situation. In, in, in this over 100 year church, I'm told by some that that wasn't always the case here at Calvary. And yet today, I'm pleased to say that God is at work. And, and so God's love abounds within these grounds, doesn't it? Can you feel it? Have you experienced Now... I want you to know real quick, we didn't do any of this. Get that in your head real fast. We didn't do any of this. We let Christ lead us. And He has wrought what no amount of slickness could ever manufacture. Christ has brought His love into our hearts. And He's brought His love amongst one another. And so now they know us by our our love. And, And many times I have visitors come back and say, you know, your church is so friendly, it's so loving, it's so different. How did you do that? And the answer is... We didn't do that. We asked for God to change us and for them to feel the love of God when they walk under our campus. Whatever good there is at Calvary, and I'm not saying everything here is good because we're a bunch of sinners, right? We know. But whatever good there is at Calvary, I want you to understand that God has done it. Understand that it's how God always does it. God raises up different biblical leaders for different biblical assignments, and those biblical leaders work those assignments under completion and ideally... Those biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that even their detractors reluctantly recognize that God was at work in that situation. And that brings us to our last point today, and here it is. Biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that God gets the glory, not them and not their organization. God gets the glory. Verse 16 And when our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You know what that means? That means that if God is going to get the glory in our story, it means you and I aren't going to get the glory. It means Calvary's not going to get the glory. It means the Evangelical Free Church of America is not going to get the glory. It means Jesus Christ is going to get the glory. If God is going to get the glory in our story, it means that God gets to write Calvary's script, not us. It means that God gets to assemble the cast of characters in this script, not us. It means that God gets to choose in which scenes to heighten the tension and how to bring resolution so that He gets the glory and not us. Is that the life we are leading? Is that the church? we are building is that the legacy we are leaving i hope so because biblical leaders achieve things in such a way that god gets the glory not them and not the organization that they lead and so to that end let's pray dear lord to you be the glory great things you have done So loved You, the world, that You gave us Your Son, who yielded His life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that we may go in. We praise Thee, O God, for the Son of Thy love, for our Savior who died and is now raised above. We praise Thee, O God, for Thy Spirit of light who has shown us the Savior and scattered our night. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Hallelujah, Amen. Hallelujah, Thine the glory. Lord, would You revive us again. In just a moment, as we go to the cup and we go to the bread and we think of Your body that was broken and Your blood that was shed, we ask that You would be glorified. That this wouldn't be cold ritual tacked on on a Sunday, but this would be worship done in remembrance of Jesus. That we would be proclaiming the Lord's death until He returns to bring us to unimaginable glorious life. And fullness. Lord Jesus, we love You. And we ask that You would lead this church. That You would lead our elders. That You would lead our committees. That You would lead our ministries in such a way that that You are orchestrating every event. That the people that come are, are God sent. That we would be faithful to what You told Peter. That we would feed Your sheep and we would feed Your little lambs. That we would find the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And we would see them become on-mission Christians who take the Gospel into their workspace, who take the Gospel into their neighborhood, whose lives are changed because there is a living God. Not because we're religious. Not because we're goody-goodies or do-gooders, but because Christ in us is changing us. Day by day, bit by bit, would You conform us more and more to the image of Your precious Son, who though tempted in all points was without sin, Lord, if there are any here today who are learning about Jesus but have not yet put their faith in Jesus, as we're in the Old Testament, as we're looking at leadership, and that's wonderful, and the church needs to think about leadership, the greatest thing each of us needs is the Lordship of Jesus, not the leadership principles of Nehemiah. And so I pray today, if there's someone here who has yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, because without faith, it's impossible to please God, If there's someone here today who knows about Jesus but doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus, and you would like to have the Lord Jesus be your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you must understand three things. You must understand that you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You must understand that the wages of sin is death, that you cannot earn your way to God by trying harder or being better. If that was true, Christ would never have had to span heaven and earth and die for you. The fact is we're all on equal footing at the cross and the equal footing is we all need a Savior. And so God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so today, if you want to make Jesus Lord of your life, the Bible says that you must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's not a trite statement. It's the desire of your heart that you're going to surrender being the pilot and you're going to give it to Jesus. If that's what you'd like to do today, your prayer can be expressed like this. Right here in the quietness of your heart, you can pray, Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that there's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved. And that name is Jesus. The name above all names. And so I ask, Lord, that You would would forgive me for my iniquity. That You would put all of that onto Your precious Son. And that You would put Your righteousness on me from Him. Lord, help me to live for You. Help me to walk for You. Help me to share You. Give me a holy boldness to talk about Jesus. Remake me into an on-mission Christian. On fire for You. Effective and productive. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and Amen.